0: Another week has gone by, and I still have not heard anybody say, I love my alarm clock. We ended last week by by me telling you that I had never heard anybody say, I love my alarm clock, but we also acknowledged that alarm clocks are important, whether we're early risers or not. Alarm clocks are important, especially if they present, uh, prevent us from missing an important event. How many of us have overslept and had to dash, unshowered and unshaved and stinky breath to an event that we would have been at if the alarm had worked or we had had one set. Uh, will we hear God's urgent and gracious eschatological alarm clock? That's the question that I left you with yet uh, last week. I used that big word. You don't need to be s- shocked by it. Uh, it simply means living in the light of the end, which is what you and I are supposed to do as Christ followers. The fact that Christ is coming again and has set that clock in motion ought to impact directly the way that you and I live on a day-to-day basis we must hear that urgent and gracious alarm clock that God has set for us. For the messenger of God, the apostle Paul, has declared, as we heard last week in Romans 13, the first part of verse 11, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. We wondered whether or not Paul was poking those in the Roman house churches of the first century, because he had gotten word. He had never been there. He was on his way there. But he had gotten word that they were lackadaisical. They were asleep. They did not heed the words that you heard out of Luke chapter 12 this morning, uh, where Jesus himself telling us that we do not know the day or the time, so we must be ready. We must be about our Father's business. You know the time that the hours come for you to wake from sleep. And last week we saw uh, an urgent reality, which is that, knowing the time and waking from sleep, and we heard the urgent reason for it as well, while we view that in just a second. And today, as I promised you last week, that should the Lord tarry and he give me breath, both of which he has done, we would look at the three urgent responses to that urgent reality based in its urgent reason. And that'll take place in the back half of verse 12 to verses 14. Three urgent responses, and I'll give those to you in just a moment. But let's recap where we were, if you please, last week. As I mentioned, that more than one writer, and I'm in agreement with them, has said of Paul, and really of the New Testament, that you cannot understand him or it if you do not understand his thinking about the end times, thinking about his eschatology, his all-encompassing vision of life that's lived in light of the return of Jesus and the final judgment of God. Paul is dripping with this. The New Testament writers are dripping with this. The day Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, it started an entirely different clock for those who would follow Jesus in anticipation of his return. And how many of us, live in anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. I admit that it's not a particularly easy thing to do because it it seems so delayed. I mean, it's more than 2,000 years now. Will it be another 2,000 years? We don't don't know. Will it be tomorrow? We, We don't know that either. But we ought to live with intentionality, with a mindset that says, I'm going to spend my money in a particular way based on the fact that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to be engaged in certain relationships based on the fact that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back. I'm going to live in particular places based on the fact that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back again someday. I I, I have not met very many people who were intentional about these kinds of things. And it pains me how little I do it. And it pains me how little the churches of Jesus Christ do it, where so much of the New Testament, I would dare say all of the New Testament, basically tells us that this is how you and I ought to be living our lives, with this on the forefront of our minds, not in any panic mode, but simply with the assurance that if things don't work out exactly the way I would like them to, that's okay. The Lord is still in charge. He's still going to bring about his good and pleasing and perfect will. So to that end, we saw in verse 11 of Romans chapter 13, this urgent reality that Paul impressed upon us. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Sleep, the conformity to the pattern of this age, which we saw in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed, or better, stop being conformed to the pattern of this age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might be able to test and approve God's will as good and pleasing and perfect will. That's what it means to be sleeping, To be sleeping means to be conformed to the pattern of this age. There's no difference between you and your neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor. What is it that separates you in behavior from those around you? The spirit of Pentecost has come. New creation in Christ has dawned. The hour has come for us to wake from sleep. And he grounds this reality in an urgent reason as well. The end of verse 11 and into Romans 13, verse 12 Here it is. See that little word for? For salvation. That's the reason. The F O R is a reason word. For this reason, salvation is nearer, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. He piles up these images, these words, expressing to us the new age, if you please, that we live in. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's nearer to us now than it was last week when I preached this. And that is, the, that is the reason why Paul says, wake up. Paul says, you know the time. Let us be aroused from our sleep. Why? Because your salvation is nearer. And we saw that in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of as not only past, but also present, and here now, future as well. So yes, we are secure in our salvation, but now we live into And fill out that reality, if you please. Paul says, does he not to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Not on your own, because he goes on to say, because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do that which is in accord with his good pleasure. So we are saved, we are being saved, and we will finally be saved as well. And that capital S salvation is what looms large in our lives. It's the ground that Paul builds up from when he expresses the reality of awake from your sleep. And as we saw so clearly, he follows the teaching of Jesus with regard to that. I mean, you just heard it right over you this morning out of Luke chapter 12. With unpanicked urgency. Remember we we said that last week? I just, I kept mulling that phrase over. I just, I loved it so much. Unpanicked urgency. You can live with a sense of urgency and not panic. Because in Christ, there's no need for us to panic. We do not need to run around as though our heads have been chopped off like the rest of the world does. We are not to seek those things that the Gentiles seek, in the words of Jesus. They worry about those things. Jesus directly commands us not to worry about them. You seek first the kingdom of God, and these things he has promised to provide us in order to do those very things. With unpanicked urgency, our gracious God, who's begun a good work in us, has promised to bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus, reminds us that with each passing day, we're this much closer to meeting our Savior. This much closer. So we ask a question and take up this third part and final part of this little section. How then should we live in light of the return of our Lord? And this is basically where we stopped last week, and I said to you that Paul gives us three reasons, three responses. So there's an urgent reality grounded in an urgent reason. And then he gives us three urgent responses. Responses, I'm being a little cute here, responses that are as different as night and day. Now you'll know why I did that in just a second. Here's the first one. This is the second half now of verse 12, Romans chapter 13. See the so then I want you to see where I'm getting these things in the text. This is not my idea. These are not my cute outlines. I want you to see it grounded in the Word of God. See the so then? The night is far gone, the day is hand. So then, uh, here's his action plan, if you please. He's laid out a reality and its reason, and now here are the action steps based on that reality. So then, first, positively, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see the day and night? The day-night metaphor is going to linger there for Paul, he's going to bring it through all three of these reasons. So his the night image here in the first response in Romans 13, 12, is that we are to cast off the works of darkness. By contrast, as we cast something off, we put something on. We put on the armor of light. But notice what he's doing here. Um, it casting off works of darkness. I, I, I love what another English translation says. It remove, remove these deeds like dirty clothes. Uh, some of you noticed that we've got a yard of sod laid out now. And I spent the better part of Thursday and Friday together with Brother Matt and a couple of our eighth graders uh, helping lay out that sod. And you should have seen what I look like on all fours, crawling around on the ground, hosing it all down. Uh, I was just messing everybody's mind when I walked into the building and said, well, here's the principal of the school, and he's covered head to toe in sod. And the stuff that goes into sod that smells rather fragrant when it's about 85 degrees outside. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark. It's nice to meet you. I smell like a horse. (laughs) I was really tempted to see what your action would have been if I had showed up this morning looking like that. But... There's not just one woman, but there's two women right now in my household who were guarding the doors that I didn't walk back out with those dirty clothes on. What are these works of darkness? Uh, easy enough, it's, this isn't rocket science right here, anything in all that is contrary to the moral will of God, a deed of darkness. Ask yourself, I, I, I've often wondered this, why do we do certain things in the dark that we don't do in the daylight? And typically we do things in the dark because we want to hide. We think we can't be seen, and and in profound ways we can't be. Robberies occur at night. Murders occur at night. It's not that they don't occur during the day, but it's a whole lot easier to get away with something when even if a camera picks you up, only sees you covered head to toe, and you can't be really readily identified. Why do we do things in the dark? So Paul tells us that we are to cast off these works of darkness. This present evil age is a dark age. These are biblical words describing the world in, in, in which in which we live. I like to think of the deeds of darkness associated, by contrast, with the uh, with the fruit of the spirit. And if you turn uh, in Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter five, uh, what Paul does there is that he lists the works of the flesh. And then he juxtaposes them against the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you want a little catalog of what the deeds of darkness sound like, you 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 won't do much better in the New Testament than Galatians five, nineteen to twenty-one. And this is what the works of the flesh are works of the flesh, deeds of the darkness, one and the same thing. They are sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list. These are the deeds of darkness. By contrast, Paul says, see what he's doing? The language is so, it's just so beautiful. Cast off the deeds of darkness, watch it now, put on the armor of light. It's a beautiful image. He's he's, he's in his wardrobe here. He's in his clothes closet. And what he's doing is he's taking off the dirty, filthy rags, and he's throwing them away. And what is he doing? As he stands there now, unclothed, if you please, now he reaches... And he gets, he gets the armor of light, and now he's going to put that on. Notice the intentionality. I'm going to make this point near the end. But notice the intentionality, that some effort is required here. You don't just walk into your closet and expect something to happen. You don't walk in there and say, okay, take off my dirty clothes, put on my clean clothes. I mean, my wife who loves me won't even do that. I'm being partially colorblind. She does sometimes lay out my clothes so I don't make clothing mistakes which I don't fully comprehend to begin with. I get some good stories for you on that, but I'll spare them right now. But the image is powerful. Cast off your dirty clothes, put on the armor of light. But notice what he's doing as well, because if you, if you drill down just a little bit, it, it yields more fruit for our contemplation. Notice how the deeds of darkness, are kind of these flimsy casting off of dirty clothes, but you're putting on not just a clean shirt, you're putting on armor. So, you're moving from something that's just, un, this won't protect me in a battle, but now I'm putting on the armor of light. It, it, it's in the plural, so it literally means weapons. You're, you're, it's not merely clothing, but it's an armor, it's weapons. And what's the implication? Is that we're in a fight. And we, we need to accentuate that point. I mean, you know how Paul unpacks this in Ephesians chapter 6. Which we won't have time to go to right now. But the reality that we're in a fight is one that often goes by us in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm in Christ. Uh, He's my strong tower. I run into him and I'm saved and I don't have to worry about these kinds of things. And one of the things that one of the realities that's just been popping in my life over the last year is what is going on in the unseen realm that God is protecting us from? I think one of those things that when we go to glory and we're, it's revealed to us what a day-to-day operation looked like in the unseen realm and how it is that in this very moment God's messengers, his angels are protecting us, his spirit is among us, Jesus is among us, he holds this church in his hand and they're fighting battles for us in the unseen realm. Why are we, why are we alive? Why are we not being overcome right now by the demonic realm? Why are we not dead? Because God is at work for us. God is fighting for us right now and giving us breath, giving us purpose to live. It's an amazing passage. Paul says, get away from those things that are going to keep you from that and expose you. Put on the armor of light. Take up what it is that God has given to you in Christ because you're in a fight. You're in a battle. It requires effort. Paul says, I've run the race. I've beat my body so that I can become increasingly holy and following Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the light? I mean, it's the exact opposite of the darkness. It's those things that are keeping with the moral will of God, this new age of the Spirit in which we live, being indwelt by him. And go back to Romans chapter 5, I mean, Galatians chapter 5, if you'd like. And list, look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, listen now, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So there's the reality, Paul says this also in Romans 8, there's this reality that we are no longer in the sphere of the flesh. We're in the sphere of the Spirit. And there's not an overlap there. Those are two spheres Unbelievers are in the sphere of the flesh. Those animal instincts, if you please, to which we yield consistently apart from Christ, with which to complete the unholy trinity, the devil and the world work together to keep us hell-bent. When we're converted, we're moved out of the sphere of the flesh and put into the sphere of the spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You're no longer in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. That's a powerful reality to get in your mind, and it stays here with the clothing reality as well. You're not wearing the dirty clothes. You're wearing the new suit now. You're wearing the armor of light. You're in the spirit, not in the flesh. It doesn't mean that you no longer have battles, but what happens is the flesh here wants back in. Yet we do not have to yield to it because we're in the power of the spirit. Get away from me, flesh, world, devil, Because we're in Christ, protected by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice, secondly, what he says there, as you come to verse 13 with me. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. There's the daytime image. Not in, now there's three not-ins. This is the darkness coming back. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. There's great overlap between the first and second reasons. The Christian life is described as walking properly in the daytime. So take what I just taught you from the first reason and now think of your journey in the Christian life as a walk. You're walking through life. Notice what the word says it says walk properly. Psalm one, I hope Psalm one springs to your mind in this case. What does the man of God do? He doesn't walk. He doesn't sit he, in the council of the wicked. What does he do? All day long he meditates upon the word of God so that it becomes part of who he is. So watch that. If you look at Psalm chapter one, look at how, how the progressions he 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 walks, then he stops, and he stands, and then he takes one more intentional movement and he sits. That's a pattern you don't want to repeat. You're walking which means you're not stopping and you're not sitting at the table of darkness. You're not giving yield to the sins of the flesh. You're walking properly. You're not making the mistake of stopping. Oh, it won't hurt just to look a little bit here. Hey, you know what? This isn't so bad after all. Let me sit down and stay a while. It's a profound psalm. And what does he do? He pivots. He says, no. No. Instead, the one who's walking properly with the Lord, what is he doing? He's in the Word of God. He's meditating upon it day and night. He's making it his. Walk not in the sins of the body and the sins of the body. Wait a minute. Pastor Mark, you just repeated yourself. I did, but I didn't. Let me tell you exactly what I have written down right here. Do not participate in the sins of the body, lowercase b, The body. Don't sin. Don't offer your body, as Paul says earlier in Romans, don't offer your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Instead, offer your body as instruments of righteousness. And isn't that what he says in 12.1? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which are holy and pleasing to God. But then I said, and don't participate in the sins of the body, capital B-O-D-Y, meaning what? Well, I can sin in my body, sexually, in debauched ways. I can also sin in the body, in the body of Christ, which is what I think he's getting at here with the quarreling and jealousy. made that point last week. He's clicking along with all these grotesque words about orgies and debauchery and drunkenness and sexual immorality, and then all of a sudden he says, quarreling and jealousy. It's like, whoa, 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 how did that get in there? But he makes a profound point (laughs) because, as I said last week, we tend to elevate the sexual sins like as nearly the unpardonable sins. And quarreling and jealousy, eh, Jerry Bridges calls them the respectable sins. You know, I'm not sexually immoral. Uh, I'm jealous all day long, but uh, jealousy. At least I'm not sexually immoral. Paul says, well, wait a minute. Sin is sin. There are degrees of it, I will argue. I'm not here, but I would argue that. But nevertheless, here it is, and it's not a throw-in. So what's going on in this first century Rome? Well, I'm guessing what's going on in the first century Rome is very similar to what's going on in 21st century Staten Island. People are quarreling, people are jealous, they're backbiting, and they're gossiping. And that's in the church. And that's in the church. See, at the risk of ruffling a feather or two here, one of the things that God is working in and through the coronavirus is it, 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 it's, it's really revealing our hearts. It's revealing the inner workings of our very souls. Churches are literally dividing over masks. And I literally am losing sleep at the thought of it. With everything that's going on in the world, and with everything of importance for the body of Christ, churches are dividing because they're quarreling and they want their rights to the point where they'll divide the body of Christ. We will give an account for that. I pray we get passing grades here at New York Baptist Church with regard to that. It's a work of darkness. It's a work of the flesh. Quarreling and jealousy, Paul puts in the same line as drunkenness and orgies. That's sobering. That's very sobering. I go, ooh, at the thoughts of some of those words, and then I don't go, ooh, when I think about grumbling. And complaining. You know, it's not that bad. But when your standard is not your next door neighbor, when your standard is an ultimately eternal and perfectly holy God, then any sin is an abomination. And we ought to flee from it. I mean, literally, flee from it. Notice what he does in the third reason as we wind this down now. In the third reason, he seems like he kind of puts his arms around it all, and he brings it in, and he gives us a summary statement. Reason one about dressing properly. Reason two about walking properly. And then he says in reason three, verse 14, there is this word, but. I want to be sure that you see it with me. You know how I love those little words. 13, 14, Romans 13, 14, the word, but. I, I, point this out to you in the past. There are two ways to say but in the original language. One is just a common everyday kind of but. I don't, I don't, I don't want vanilla, but I'll have chocolate e- every day kind of vanilla, but then the second way of doing it is a, is a sharper. It's more contrastive. It's an attention grabber. This is the but right here. So what Paul has basically said is, look, I've, I've given you Romans. I've, I've given you reasons one and two, and now it's going to be like, Breaks on, but do this. He's creating a contrast. Now he's going to wind down his argument, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This summarizes it all. Walking properly, dressing properly, it's all about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Avoiding the sins of darkness, avoiding the works of the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Remember, I, I love this connection here, when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ at your baptism. We, we Protestants tend not to make a well, we're Baptists, but we don't go back and talk about our baptism like much of the high church does. And I think that's our loss. But remember your baptism. Luther used to say that all, remember your baptism. Your baptism, according to Romans 6, is when you died to Christ. And you you were raised from the dead together with him. And so you have put on Christ. That's literally what he says in Romans chapter 6. You put him on, you've died with him, and you've been raised with him. So you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you also grow into your baptism as well. Remind that when you're being harassed by the evil one. Remind you when your flesh is roaring. Remind yourself, I've been baptized. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I no longer live the life I now live. How do I live it? By faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and gave himself for me. Grow into your baptism as a way to remind yourself that you're protected by the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how how Paul explains this for us in, in Colossians. I'll just read you a couple of verses in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. I mean, the whole section is about putting on the new self. In Colossians 3, 12, he says, "...put on then," same language, "...put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved." Don't you love it when, Paul, we just zip right past those words. But this is how Paul's thinking about his people. This is how I pray I think about you. Put on, then, your God's chosen ones, church. You're holy and you're beloved by God. Now, from that position, put on. Put on what? Put on compassionate hearts. Put on Kindness. Put on humility and meekness and patience. Bearing with one another, oh boy. Bearing with one another, even when their opinion is different from yours. And if one is a complaint against another, forgive. Lord, have mercy. What would the world look like if the church took these words seriously? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, Paul goes back to this clothing imagery regularly. Put it on. Meaning what? You can. You don't put it on to get dressed up nice, to stand before the king of the universe and say, Do I get in? Uh uh-uh, uh uh. You're in, that's why you get dressed up. You're in, that's why you can work. You don't work to get in, you're in so that you can work. And as I say it all the time in this pulpit, you reverse that, you lose the essence of Christianity. You lose all of the gospel. We become pharisaical rather than beggars who have found bread and desire to share it with others. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's here's how one writer says it. We are consciously to embrace Christ in such a way that his character is manifested in all that we do and say. That's a tall order, brothers and sisters. I put myself under the microscope. I ask you the question, if I were to grab one of your neighbors, one of your co-workers, and ask them a very simple question, do you see Christ in this person? What would they say? What would they say? Who? Who? Christ who? Oh. Yeah, they're a little religious, wacky kind of stuff. They're compassionate. So loving, patient, kind. It's something to shoot for. I struggle sometimes with patience. My wife knows. I, every day, pray the fruit of the Spirit into my life and yours. Every day. It's an individual prayer and a blanket prayer. Lord, may the saints at New York Baptist Church grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Make us more loving people. Make us more patient people. Make us kinder people. Make us good people. Oh God, please help us to be self-controlled. Pray that. You struggle with your prayers? Put the fruit of the Spirit in front of you and say, and just say, Lord, I want this. I want this. The Spirit's in me. Now I want this. Bear this fruit in my life. Bear this fruit in the life of my brother and sister as well. Make no provision, he says in closing, for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see the effort that's there again? Listen to what he says again in Colossians, this time in verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death. Put to death. See what he's doing? Put on. Put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. Sexual immorality, here's the list again. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, verse 7 of Colossians 3, take this home. If the in these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now. Let's see, uh, two favorite words, but now. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see that? Just what I did a couple of seconds ago. You've put off the old self and you've put on the new self. Now it's on, but you're still putting it on. Isn't that what he says? And it put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. So you're wearing the new suit, but that new suit is still fitting you. You're still growing into it. It's being renewed. It's new and being renewed. I, I don't know about you, but I'm hearing myself preach this, and I'm taking a step back and think to myself, it is an amazing thing to be a child of the living God. What an, exhilarating, what an exhilarating way to describe the Christian life. I mean, I got nothing else for you, brothers and sisters, if this doesn't bore down to the bottom of your souls and encourage you to keep on persevering, to desire the great things that God has for each and every one of us, to be children of the light and to forego the deeds of darkness. Can I get an amen in the building? I always love it how you respond. Make no provision. Make no provision. Here's where we finish." It takes effort. And Paul makes that very clear. You know, Moise and I, he won't recall this. Maybe he will. A couple of weeks ago, Moise said to me how one line in a sermon several weeks prior to that impacted him. When I asked the very simple question, do you have a plan to grow in holiness? Do you remember? He took me quite seriously. At least one of them. One of you you did. He took me quite seriously when I asked, do you have a plan to grow in Christ's likeness A lot of people look at me cross-eyed, like, no, I'm, I'm a believer, and I just, just go through life. You know, discipleship by osmosis is nowhere in the Bible. So if you're a follower of Christ, let's get to work, not to earn his favor, but to work out of the favor that he's already bestowed upon us. It's the horse and cart I talk about all the time. Horse and cart, not cart and horse. What do you do? What, what have you done? This hit me this morning, my final edit. What have you done to stay safe from the coronavirus? Now let me ask you this question. What are you doing to stay safe from the flesh? Because the flesh is more deadly than the coronavirus. What did you do to stay safe from a pandemic? What are you doing to grow in Christ-likeness? What are you doing to protect yourself from sin, the world, the devil? We must, church, we must, by the grace of God, be intentional. What are we to do in order to avoid the even more deadly desires of the flesh? That old man wants to come back in and his desires are deadly. He does not want to come in and have a beer with you while he watches the game with you tonight. He wants to come in and eat you alive. Are you gonna entertain him? Or in the name of Jesus Christ, that you are going to keep them out? Romans 14.14 14 has now come full circle all the way back to Romans 12.2. And it closes the loop on the characteristics of a life that's lived in view of the mercies of God, of a life that does not conform to the pattern of this age, of a life that is transformed by the renewing of one's mind. This Christian life, brothers and sisters, is not passive. If you're resting, you're retreating. Now, resting in what God has done for us in Christ, absolutely. That's Hebrews chapter 4. But resting in the sense that I don't need to be vigilant is dangerous. Working out our salvation requires ongoing effort. Here's the good news. Here's the grace of the gospel. We're not doing it on our own. We have the triune God on our side. We have God the Father in love, working all things together for our good. Father, we love you. We worship and adore you, glorify your name in all the earth. We have God the Son in love, interceding for us this very moment. Jesus, we love you, we worship and adore you, glorify your name in all the earth. We have God the Spirit in love, dwelling within us, to teach us all things. Spirit, we love you. We worship and adore you. Glorify your name in all of the earth. Let's pray. Our triune God, in humility, we come into your presence and we give you thanks for your word, your word that has been handed down to us because of your Sweet providence. We were once children of wrath, lost in darkness, and enjoying it. Egging others on to join us. But now, glory, are there two bigger words in the Bible? But now, in Christ, we've been set free from sin and death. In Christ, we can know the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Oh, Father, this precious tribe that you've called out to be your very own, I pray that they leave here encouraged with the knowledge that the triune God is on their side. The psalmist reminds us that you are for us. And if you are for us, who could possibly be against us? For you have given us your Son. And if you've given us the most you could give, How could you possibly withhold anything else that is lesser by comparison, yet nevertheless necessary for us to go on to maturity? Let us forever live by the mercies of God, no longer conforming to the pattern of this age and instead being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So help us God. Amen Amen. and amen.